and I'll pray for our time. Dear Heavenly Father, please be with us as we continue to look at your word. Uh, give us uh, an understanding and a deeper love for Jesus and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We spent a lot of time talking about creation, and in this section I want to talk about grace, uh, which we could just describe as God's gift, God's free gift of salvation, but another way would be, in my object, as I have it in my objective here, to understand how God restores his fallen creation, to understand how God restores his fallen creation. I do have one more little group exercise for you all. And here I just want to bring in a New Testament passage as a kind of uh, complement to what we're going to talk about today. And that is 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll give you a question about it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, so here's my question for you guys that I want you to talk about a bit. What does it mean to say that we are become partakers of the divine nature? Uh, you know, How should we understand this based on the context, and do you see any potential dangers in how we might understand that phrase? So go ahead and get it together in small groups, try to figure out what that means, and we'll get back together and talk about it. <laughs> Those words, partakers of the divine nature, what do, they, what do they mean? And are there any understandings that would be bad we should avoid of those words? Second, Second Peter 1, verses 3 to 4. Second Peter 1, verses 3 to 4.
Okay. Sounds like we have good discussion again, but let's uh, let's pull it around and try to and bring it back to the group here. Okay. So hopefully, hopefully that five minutes was enough to settle an age-old theological debate <laughs> about what it means to be partakers of the divine nature. Uh, does anybody want to say, volunteer some information about how what you talked about in your group? Maybe we can get the speaker. I don't know if anybody has the uh, the, the microphone or you can just talk loud. <laughs> yeah, you have. Oh. I see people volunteering other people. <laughs> Do where what? Yeah, we, we talked about how. Uh, we just uh, talked about how uh, the word partake kind of brings to mind uh, eating and mm. filling ourselves, like kind of going back to the emptiness and that we start with, and we fill ourselves with. Uh, the divine nature, um, and then we also talked about the danger of pride and uh, our, what else, our Christian life um, kind of getting, uh, getting the better of us where we're judging other people and trying to separate ourselves out, making our own sanctification. Sounds like you took it in a practical direction, not just theology. Good job. <laughs> else? Uh, we talked about um, from the aspect of holiness of God um, that there are aspects of if you take the whole divine nature we cannot take all of that we're not going to be omniscient we're not going to be omnipotent but there we're is not. an aspect <laughs> there's that pride <laughs> thing right there <laughs> um, but clearly you know there's an aspect of holiness where Leviticus, yes. <laughs> so, you know, there's a parallel. God's holy, we're supposed to be holy. Yeah, this ethical ethical reflection of who God is. Tusk. Anybody? Oh, oh, there we go. That's because Molly wants this. Anybody else want to share? Any of the groups over here? What we discussed is similar to what um, Rick just said, that we can't attain holiness by in our daily walk with Christ and be divine to that maximum. So it's a daily renewal. So he, his grace helps us to be renewed daily uh -huh. as we work with him until the end. So I give an example of how I always struggle with it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, so it's a process, you know, something we're becoming and not, you know, we just believe in Jesus and, yeah, we arrive. Anybody else? Yeah, we got in the back there. If that microphone is working. Okay, yeah. Because, I mean, this is a word that gets used in some of the Lord's Supper texts. You know, this this bread we break, is it not a, a participation in the body of Jesus? Yeah. Uh, it's the same word, actually. <laughs> Partaking. Uh, so that, that eating, sharing sort of metaphor. You, say, you could say fellowship, you know. It's a word that's used for Christian fellowship with each other. So, so nobody took the view that, like, we're literally transformed into a divine substance or something like that. That's good. Because <laughs> that would be a wrong way to understand it, right? That we sort of, you know, we're not going to become like the gods of our own little planet. Or that, that's not what it's about. It's, I, I, I like the emphasis on, you know, pe- uh, people notice the corruption of sin and being purified from that. Holiness, re- resembling who God is uh, ethically, um, but not say, becoming omniscient or omnipotent, yeah. Um, well, I wanted to start there because I think it provides an interesting frame uh, for what we're going to see in Isaiah, which I think spells out a little more what does this relationship look like? You know, what does it mean to partake of God? Because at the very least, it means that in some way, God shares who he is with us uh, in, in, in some way. Uh, and I wanted to go back to actually where we started last evening, Isaiah 40, but skipping all the way to the end to sort of what's the point of all this in Isaiah 40. Like, like where was Isaiah going with this long digression about God being different than us? So I'm going to look at Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, <clears throat> my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? <clears throat> Excuse me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let me start by asking you, what do we learn about where Israel is in their heads, mentally? What headspace are God's people in that this passage is addressing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you do you un, do you see from this how wrong it is to read these passages about us like grasshoppers as if God just doesn't care about us? That's like literally the opposite of the point Isaiah is trying to make. But that's what the people think. They think God's forgotten about us. He doesn't he doesn't see the bad things that are happening to us and this harsh position of empire. Like, what, what, what time frame is this addressed to? I mean, Isaiah prophesied years in advance, but... 
the Babylonian captivity, right? So they're, yes, their nation is no longer exists as a political entity. Um, they've suffered extremely brutal uh, traumas of siege warfare and defeats. They're, they've seen their, their capital looted, and the temple, the center of their relationship with God, uh, at least phys- you know, physically speaking, burned completely to the ground, and then, you know, at least for the elite, they've been removed uh, far off to a different land. Um, there were, it's also worth thinking that there's some people who are also left behind, the very poor people who are left behind in the land. Uh, and both of these groups need encouragement. Um, and so, you know, yes, this was because of their sin, but it also, you know, uh, th- there, can be, there can be two sinners involved in an equation here. And living in the Babylonian Empire involves a lot of brutality and oppression. And now they're asking the question, okay, well, is that it? You know, there's no more temple, which if you remember Solomon's prayer at the temple, the temple was supposed to be this link, that they would pray, and then, you know, they, what they prayed in or towards the temple, God would hear in heaven and answer. Now the temple's gone. What's going to happen? Is God going to... Can God hear us? Does God care? And what the passage is saying is, yes. Uh, why? Well, this is the point of God being... of saying that God is everlasting and the creator of the ends of the earth, who is like completely powerful and has no limit to his understanding, is that he knows. He sees what's happening. Uh, and he cares. Um, and so then we end up with this sort of fainting uh, and growing weary language. Um, so this comes back to what we were talking about with um, uh, God's power and God's strength earlier on. Um, but here we go beyond just saying God is more powerful than anything and everything else is basically like, like nothing compared to God's power. We had a lot of that in the chapter and we have that again. God does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. So there you go. God's power never lacks. This is a way of saying God is omnipotent, just without the fancy Latin prefixes, right? Like, he doesn't grow weary. Uh, you know, God can, God can keep uh, uh, um, acting all day, and he just never gets tired. But then we go on. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And this is a new development in the passage because we're not just talking about God's attributes, but now, in a sense, God gives uh, to a creature something analogous to his own power. Um, And gift, remember, that's one of the, at least part of what we mean by the concept of grace. It's not the whole thing, but it's part of what we mean, that like God is giving this sort of uh, thing. Uh, And so, you know, we can remember in the background here, of course, we know everything lives and dies by the agency of God's spirit and by God's power. That's what we talked about last time. But now we see that there's this special way God acts um, to give power. And why would I call it special? Well, look at the next verse. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. So this is a really interesting contrast. He sets up sort of this general way that things work, which is, some people are really strong, and some people aren't. But then he points out, even the people who are really strong, as we talked about last time, they get exhausted. But it's God's gift of strength here seems to work in an unexpected reversal to how the things normally work in the world. Normally, you know, the Assyrians are more powerful until the Babylonians are, and then whoever's better at warfare wins, you know? But, of course... 
you know, even the most powerful one, they have their day, right? <laughs> they get old or, they're, or they get tricked or something and then somebody else takes them out. Um, this gift of power and strength, though, sort of completely uh, uh, comes in from outside to that pattern and operates completely differently from it. Because it's actually the faint and those who have no might that God gives this strength to. Like, he intentionally picks the people who aren't, like, young, strong men or princes or, the, you know, the powerful nations that, the, you know, the whole passage has been t- telling us are, like, nothing compared to God. That, like, God is, these are the people God is intentionally giving his power and strength to. Uh, and I think here is, like, another part of what we mean by grace. Not just that it's a gift, but it's something that sort of reverses our expectations about what's high and mighty and lofty and lifted up um, and tends to, like, instead exalt what we thought was, like, lowly and cast down and didn't matter. Um, and we have that here as well. Um, and then, of course, we get the famous, famous words. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Um, I mean, not only does he give them strength, but it's like, you know, it sounds like a superpower. <laughs> they can fly. Yeah, my, probably a metaphor. But nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, a very powerful one. That, you know, these people who were like the weak, you know, weaklings before are now, you know, running a marathon and they're not weary at the end. You know, and they're, you know, and, and, and walking like miles and miles and like not getting faint. Um, and so it actually exceeds what we, you know, here's another thing about grace. It's like beyond. It's beyond what we can imagine, beyond what we can sort of conceive. It's like bigger than what, it's bigger than what our normal experiences set us up to figure out. Um, it's, it, and, and, and therefore very unexpected and very surprising. Uh, I guess another way to put it, also from a few chapters later, is God's doing a new thing. Even compared to his act of creation, it's different and new and, 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 and counters expectations. Um, so, I mean, uh, this makes it... Uh, let, let, let me just a- ask you guys a question here. Um, is this, like, just sort of like a permanent... I'm always at 100% energy sort of thing? Or do you see any hints in this verse, verse 31, that it might be more complicated than just being the Energizer Bunny? Okay, so there's actually this waiting in here. I do, I'm glad you pointed it out, because that is... Let's keep, keep that in mind. So it, it appears that, like, you know, you might not just always have this. Yeah, renew. And actually, um, the Hebrew word here is like, well, the most literal use is like to change. Actually, it can mean to change your clothes. Um, but it, can also, it also is ref- often refers to like processes of change in the world. And so, you know, this is something that doesn't just sort of happen one time. You know, like say at the beginning of the Christian life, you know, God hands you an inexhaustible battery sends you on your way. <laughs> it's sort of cyclical, right? We have to keep we might have to keep coming back and and and, and receive which it actually isn't surprising given what we said about the spirit and creation as well that you know it's not like creation just can go on its way but it's like constantly dependent upon God for all kinds of life 
that's how it works with grace as well. We don't just like get enough grace and we're sort of done. Um, you know, this kind of ties in with I think one of my favorite sentences from the Westminster Confession on Good Works, which says, you know, that beyond the graces that we've already received, every good work a believer does depends on a fresh act of the Holy Spirit. It's quite a radical thing to say that we never, we never just kind of go coast, coast on yesterday's grace, uh, you know, in uh, and and do like a, a certain number of good things and then get empty. Like, no, it's like there's a it's a relationship of constant dependence upon the Spirit. And the Spirit acts every time that we are able to do something good. Um, so uh, this is an idea that comes up uh, again and again throughout uh, this section of Isaiah. Let me just give you a couple other examples. Um, 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, you know, that image of God, like, holding you in his hand and, like, holding you up when you maybe you would fall over on your own. Um, or forty-one thirteen to 14. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. So, you know, it's like here's the little kid in the grocery store and God's got your right hand. Um, sorry, that's, if he's holding your right hand, that should be my left hand. But um, it is I who say to you, fear not. This is, like, the most common, this is the most basic prophecy, right? Fear not. Is in like every every single prophecy. It seems like fear not, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. This is a kind of fun occurrence of this worm language, isn't it? Um, we had grasshoppers. Now we have worms. Uh, we, uh, um, and it's kind of interesting, you know. I feel like this inse- insect language. <laughs> Insect metaphors. Uh, I, it's, it's just hard not to bring that up and not think about Jonathan Edwards' sermon, where you know where he goes with the insect metaphor is that like it's a picture of how our sin makes us um, disgusting to God. But I actually don't think that that's what's happening here. Uh, I really don't it, uh, because this almost seems affectionate to me. I mean, he's reminding them of how small they are, but at the same time, he's like, "I'm here," and I just think that maybe you know maybe God is like. Like some some children are, which you know they're really actually like love insects. They're like super excited about them. I mean, he did make them after all. Maybe we're not. Maybe we wonder sometimes why God was so excited about insects. But he I mean he 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 dreamt up so many different kinds. <laughs> so clearly he is. Um, yeah, here it seems almost like an affectionate way of reminding the people how small they are, but in the sense of like don't be afraid. Um, uh, and so and this also all comes together under the theme of God's strength. So Isaiah 52, is my arm really too short to redeem? Is there no strength in me to deliver? Um, so again, the arm is just a picture of strength, right? Uh, which I think if you ever break your arm, you'll discover how hard it becomes to do things <laughs> until you get that arm healed again. Um, and, and then, you know, this image of strength being like in, in God, you know, how much... Uh, which is itself is kind of a, a metaphor, but like how, how much, you know, where, where, where are we going to go to find strength? The idols are void. You know, there's, there, you can't, there's actually no strength in there. It's, it's a lot of pretty gold on the outside, but uh, nothing on the inside, nothing going on. You know, wave your hand in front of their eyes, nothing. Um, but God is, does have all this, this infinite, unlimited, never-wearying strength. Um, and then, you know, chapter 45, verses 24 to 25. 
Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Um, so you have this sense of you, Israel has these enemies who are trying to put them to shame. But at the end of the day, because God's the only one who has strength and righteousness, Israel is the one who's going to be sort of declared declared righteous, declared belonging to God, and those who attack them are actually going to be put to shame. So Israel's going to be justified and others won't, because God's the one who has strength. Um, and here I want to come back to these empty idols again. Um, and, and note the theme that, uh, as I read these verses, I want you to think, what, which, what are, which of these phrases applies to the idols? And which of these phrases applies to human beings who make or worship them? I think it's actually going to be a little tricky, so you know, get, get ready. Uh, Isaiah 41:24. Look, you are lacking, and your deeds are lacking. The one who chooses you is an abomination. That's my translation. But, uh, 41:29. All of them are nothing, and their works are naught. Wind and void are their molten statues. 44:9-10. All of those who form idols are void, and the things they delight in do not profit. It is their witnesses who do not see and do not know. Therefore, they will be put to shame. Who has formed a god and molded an idol which does not profit? And 57.13, When you cry out, let your idol collection deliver you. A wind shall lift all of them. A vapor will carry them. But the one who trusts in me will inherit the land and will possess the mountain of my holiness. So, especially out of context, it's actually really hard to tell when we're talking about idols and when we're talking about people who make and worship them, isn't it? Um, and you know, part of the issue I'll have to do in my dissertation is actually try to figure out out clause by clause <laughs> when are we talking about what sometimes we're talking about gods like for instance all of them are nothing their works are not and their molten statues are wind and void is actually the gods are nothing they don't do anything and then even their statues are also nothing right because you have the, these false gods and then you have their statues um, but uh, without we don't need to sort through all this here to see that actually both the, uh, the idols are nothing, but the people who make them also sort of become void and nothing. And there's actually, Psalm 115 states this general principle, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. This sense that like, if you orient your life around this void thing, instead of around God, you end up coming to resemble it. Um, and in fact, in, in 44, when it says, it's their witnesses who do not see and do not know. That's the people who make or worship the idols being described there. Yeah, the idol is just like a block of wood, like it doesn't see or know. But also the people who make them lo like lose their ability to understand what's happening in the world. You know, they're kind of getting wrapped up in this whole like fantasy that the idol can do something when it can, and so they're losing their ability to see and know. Um, all that just to say, we have this. Um, this is the contrast to grace, right? This is us in our fallen condition, our tendency to build our lives around something that's actually hollow on the inside. Uh, and, uh, the, and so even though, to a certain extent, um, just based on God's creational goodness, there might be a lot of strength out there in the world. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was certainly strong. My goodness, if you ever look at the history of Nebuchadnezzar and his dad, Nebuchadnezzar, they're great names, by the way. I don't know, you know, 
enemies expecting, but if you need baby names, Nabopolisar. That's just great. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, he was just the governor of Babylon, and then he saw a little bit of uh, political confusion in Assyria, and in a couple decades, conquered the entire Assyrian Empire. Wow! Not quite. And then you, you can go on in history and see, like, Alexander the Great and, like, the crazy things that some of these folks did, uh, all, you know, all without believing in Jesus. Um, and yet, what this text says is that at some point in their lives, and, you know, we have the story for Nebuchadnezzar, of course, where he's, you know, well, I'll get to that in a second, but at some point in their lives, the emptiness shines through. And, the, and, and of course, all of them will ultimately die someday. With, with Nebuchadnezzar... It's that moment where he's standing on his palace and he says, all of this is Babylon, which I've built for my own power and glory. And God takes away his intelligence and makes him live like a beast in the fields until he learns that actually, no, <laughs> there's somebody stronger than him and there's a kingdom bigger than his kingdom uh, out there. Um, so this theme uh, that uh, we need grace, we, we actually we need a relationship with this God who, will give, who gives strength, uh, actually ties in with that uh, um, I am, or I am he theme I was mentioning the other night. Uh, and this is one of my favorite examples of it, which is in Isaiah 46, verses 3 to 4. Uh, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from, that's carried, born with an E, born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. Um, and here I think that I am he, I mean, it certainly has some of the sense of like, I'm the one who'll do it, you know, don't look, because we've just, he's just finished talking about the idols. Um, I mean, you know, when I was, when I was a young child, uh, my, pa- my parents would always ask me what I wanted for Christmas. And, and, and sometimes, especially when I was very young and I didn't know to... It was, I was too young to realize that, you know, I need to really be careful what I ask for. I would sometimes ask, like, almost conceptual things. <laughs> like, I'd come up with an idea and I just wanted that. So I wa- one year I asked for, I want a bear that's large enough that I can sit in its lap. <laughs> just like, you know, I'm kind of reversing the, the thing, you know. <laughs> my poor parents. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I did get that bear, but you know what? Like sitting in the bear's lap is just like not the same as sitting in a person's lap. Imagine, and so we talk, we talk about the idols. The idols actually need to be carried. That's how it works with stuffed animals, right? That, that he starts that, like that, in the beginning of the chapter, talking about Bell and Nebo having to be carried around. There's actually a story around this time of, around the time Isaiah lived, where, uh, where Sennacherib was attacking this Babylonian king and he had to flee into exile with his idols. It says he fled with his gods. Not very great gods to have. You actually have to arrange for their safe, safe transport as, as, you're, as you're losing all your battles and, and, and you know, flee across the ocean. So these gods are like, they're not going to carry you or support you is where I'm going here. You know, imagine going up to this idol. You've put the chains on carefully so it won't fall over and then asking it to help keep you up. Um, but here we have God doing that. And I think also I'm tempted to look at I am he in the sense of I am the same here. You know, because you have the whole human life. Even before birth, in the womb, God is there. And 
and with, with birth, and then all the way up to old age, you've changed a lot, but God hasn't. He's the same. And he's the one who's carrying you. And, you know, kind of like a, you know, an old person who needs some help. God's there, carrying you. That's the picture of how God is with his people, he said. Um, so this whole, you know, uh, we are just, we are so uh, fragile. <laughs> and this is just some of that basic nothingness, all the way back to the first time that we talked about it. We're not God. Uh, we're, we're just not as big as him. Uh, and great, grace doesn't change that, but it means that we're in this relationship. We're in this relationship where God is bearing us and carrying us. Okay. I want to touch back on two of the things from our last section in this regard. And one is, how is creation connected to all of this? Because we talked about creation and the creation, the earth. Um, and that comes back a big, t- a big way all throughout uh, Isaiah 40 through 66. So, for instance, I, um, looking at Isaiah 41, 17 through, 20, 20, uh, through 18, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. So this idea of God giving water in the wilderness, like, and even turning the wilderness into a garden, just shows up over and over and over again in these chapters. There's almost too many times uh, to count them all. Um, and so this idea that God in providing for his people leads to this sort of renewal of all creation. Let me give you a clearer example. Oh, I, um, actually, I didn't finish that. I see that I put my passage in columns and I missed the last half of it. Let me read through the end of verse 20. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. I mean, talk about overkill. They were just thirsty. And God puts this like whole, like, there's like a pine forest growing here. Uh, just so that, you know, they can see his deliverance for them, like bringing all creation together. And then in Isaiah 45, 8, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. There's almost a sense that the earth and the heavens are sort of participating in this uh, salvation. Um, Maybe, you know, looking ahead to Paul in Romans, talking about all creation, like groaning together for the redemption of the sons of glory. Um, And, I mean, this is part of why I insisted in the earlier passage of personifying the earth. Is Is it... I really think that the earth, in the similar way that God talks about Jerusalem being desolate, but receiving like her inhabitants back, I think there's this wider sense in which like the earth is desolated and becomes desolated by God's judgment on sin, and yet there's this participation in redemption. Um, if we could go to the Psalms and talk about how all of the all of the trees are clapping their hands when God returns to the earth. Um, but sometimes this is a little more ambiguous and I'm going to raise some questions here that I'm not sure if I'm going to really answer in this section <laughs> but I mean I, could, I couldn't not really point it out uh, in Isaiah 51 for instance I'm going to have several quotes from Isaiah 51 51.6 
Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Okay. That actually sounds a little different, doesn't it? It's like the earth is sort of like melting and vanishing, and even the heavens are, are wearing away as well. I sometimes think that, like, how much a, a good deal of a disagreement among Christians about exactly what the end times are going to look like just must have to do with the fact that sometimes the Bible describes the whole world being really happy. That, that Jesus has come back, like creation being happy. And sometimes it sounds like creation is like falling apart and melting and being destroyed. And like, how are both of these true? I'm not going to answer that. But <laughs> I'm just going to point out that, you know, when we're thinking about these questions, we should notice that like both of these themes are in the Bible. And uh, that's pretty striking. Maybe it's almost like we can't really understand what God's going to do when he comes back. I think Paul basically says that somewhere. Um, but there also, we also have the sea, by the way. And I was, later on in the same chapter, 51, 9 to 11. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? You know, a great question. And everybody here is like, oh yes, the story of Rahab. I know that. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. <laughs> Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. So we have a dragon in this passage. Kids, did you know that there were dragons in the Bible? Maybe you didn't. I remember how excited I was when I found out that there were dragons in the Bible. And it really energized my scripture reading as a child. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I was like obsessed with the book of Revelation for like a good, good, good ways. Um, but yeah, there are. And this, there's this dragon named Rahab, which seems to be something like the surging of the sea, maybe, if we try to interpret the name. Uh, and, you know, un- unfortunately, we don't really get the story of Rahab just told in prose style. But it's like alluded to. Job mentions it twice and talks about like God defeating Rahab and her helpers and stuff like that. Um, what is going on here? Well, at the very least, it seems like there's some kind of like evil cosmic force that's associated with the sea here. Maybe this has something to do with why the sea isn't there in Revelation. Um, and, uh, and, we, and also this story, I mean, it seems most like when I read about drying up the sea... Um, for the redeemed to pass over. I think about the Exodus, right? Um, But that's not to say that we couldn't see echoes here of other things, like, say, the flood, for instance. Um, I think these sorts of passages raise a lot of questions, and there are ones like this in the prophets or like Job, right? These, like, references to to things that we don't quite know how to fit in. Um, But to me, I, I think probably we should look for the answer... I mean, well, you know, we know where we go, where this dragon theme goes, right? Where, where do we see a dragon in the New Testament? Revelation. Does Revelation tell us who that dragon is? Yeah, Satan, the, uh, the, the ancient accuser who leads, the, the deceiver who leads the world astray, the dragon, uh, the, who's also a serpent. <laughs> like, this is just John. It's like everything all at once. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think maybe... 
we're have, we have a reflection here on the fact that there are certain, maybe even demonic powers present in the world. Maybe even, you know, Paul associate calls them like the elements. Sometimes, sometimes in the New Testament, it even sounds like, you know, Satan is running the world. Although not ultimately, but like he has all this power over the Gentiles. Uh, and so I think possibly, possibly, let me suggest, the reason that we have this, is creation happy or is creation sad, is that there's sort of a duality here. There are aspects of the world that are connected to these demonic forces, but like I think ultimately creation, it, it rejoices that it's removed from bondage when God returns. Okay, I've probably raised more questions than I have answered, but hopefully I've given you some new Bible texts to think about that you wouldn't normally think about. The main point remains, though, um, God being the one who sets things right. Um, and I think it's probably worth just, we, you know, having raised lots of questions from Isaiah 51, trying to bring us back to where he goes in that passage. So 51, 12 through 13, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? Okay, the point is, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid, I don't know if they're afraid of humans, I don't know if they're afraid of demonic forces, but Isaiah says you don't need to be because the one who is with you is greater than the one who is in the world. Whoever Rahab is, she didn't really stand up any chance compared to the Lord. Uh, and so, you know, just like, again, we're back with Paul. Um, can, is there anything that can stand against us if God has decided not to condemn us in Jesus Christ? Angels, principalities, powers, nope. Nothing on, nothing on earth or in heaven. And my final note I want to make here is just, we talked about the Spirit's role in creation, and of course... Uh, if we're talking about this gift of strength that happens in the context of receiving God's grace, the Spirit is there. And just to pick 44.3, I will pour water on the thirsty gland and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You know, I don't know how many of the readers of Isaiah 46 were ever literally thirsty. Maybe some of them were. But I get the sense that it's mostly a metaphor for people in a very extreme need before God. And what's the biggest thing they need, as far as God is concerned? This water is a picture of the Spirit. They need the Spirit's power in their lives. And there's this promise, which is ultimately fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, that God's going to pour out His Spirit on their descendants in a new way, like with this new blessing and this greater heightened, this greater heightened realization of His grace. Okay. Questions? All right. Well, I think we have maybe like about a little bit of like a half hour until lunch. So some time to get things ordered. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we can go. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you do not allow your creation to fall uh, to sin, and you do not leave us at the mercy of the powers of hell, but you 
have acted to save us. Uh, you have moved towards us. You have given us your grace. We pray that you'd help us to live in dependence upon that. We pray that you'd help us to have a judicious estimation of our abilities and how small and tiny they are so that we don't depend on our own strength, but that we wait on you and wait in faith, believing that you can give us the strength and the grace that we need for the callings that you've given us in this world. We pray also we would have a good lunch and that you would uh, once again uh, bless the food that we eat to our bodies to strengthen us so that we can live and enjoy another day. In Jesus' name.